Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In Romans 12, verse 9 through to the end of the chapter, Paul gives several practical instructions for Christian living. And he begins saying, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Paul declares that the love we show others must be sincere. It must come from the right motive without hypocrisy or pretense. It is possible to love another person with selfish motives, but Paul urges us to genuinely love others without any self-interest. His next instruction is stated as being two sides of the same coin. He warns us to hate what is evil and cling to what is good. Hate is such a strong word, isn't it? But Paul wants us to realize that there is danger in making any compromise with evil. If we flirt with it, our witness, our lives and even the lives of others can be completely destroyed. The other side of this command is that as we turn from the evil around us, we need to cling or hold tightly to goodness as if our lives depend upon it, for they surely do. The idea of hating what is evil and clinging to what is good is really challenging because today the world that is presented as being desirable in on TV, on social media and the internet is very far from God's design. But the more we are exposed to its ungodly and immoral views, the more normal this way of life tends to appear. Sadly, the more we become accustomed to it, the less we turn from it and the harder it becomes to even envision that which is good. Now, we don't need to become aggressive about it, but we should never lose the ability to look evil in the face, call it what it is, and hate it. Otherwise, we will lose our hold on what is good. Notice, though, that Paul calls us to hate evil. He doesn't call on us to hate the people who do evil. The old saying, you see, is still true. We are to hate sin, but love the sinner. In fact, love is the very next thing Paul talks about in verse 10 as he directs us to be devoted to one another in love. The word Paul uses here speaks of the kind of love that is shared within a family. We are to love each other as brothers and sisters and we are to care for one another deeply as part of God's family. In fact, Paul calls us to such selflessness that his next instruction is to honor one another above yourselves. In other words, we are to place a higher value on others than we do upon self. 
I think it's a natural instinct for us to want to prioritize our own rights and privileges over those of other people. But Paul reveals here that as Christians, our focus should not be on ourselves at all. We don't always have to have the last word. We don't always have to insist on having things our way. Paul then says in verse 11 that we are to never be lacking in zeal, but keep our spiritual fervor serving the Lord. When Paul calls for zeal, he means that we should never be lacking in our enthusiasm for Jesus. The Lord is always to be our first love. The word that he uses here for fervor literally means to be hot. In other words, to be on fire for the Lord. Those who follow Jesus Christ should never be accused of being lukewarm in their service for him. As I contemplated Paul's call to be on fire for God, I remembered the powerful story of Henry Martin. Born in 1781, Martin was a missionary to India and Persia, modern-day Iran. He had a gift for languages and was determined to translate the Bible for people to read God's word in their own languages. It was hard and lonely work. Martin was well known for often praying, now let me burn out for God. You see, no exertion or cost was too great for this man. He did burn out for God, eventually dying of tuberculosis at the age of just 31. Some might look at the cost of Martin's devotion and think, what a waste. But in reality, he knew that he would live just as long as God still had work for him to do. And his deepest desire was to expend himself in order to demolish the work of Satan and promote the kingdom of God. In his brief life, Henry Martin was never lacking in zeal. He was totally invested in eternity. He lived with a sense of spiritual urgency that is inspiring and convicting for us today also. How many of us view life in the same way? Are you praying, Lord, wherever I'm sent, let me burn out for you? Or are you perhaps praying, Lord, please don't send me? We are to serve God with dedication and commitment, always making good use of every opportunity we've been given, no matter what the difficulties we face. Then Paul says we are to be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The person who hopes in the Lord can indeed be joyful, for the kind of hope Paul speaks of here is not an uncertain wish. No, rather this kind of hope, as we learned before, is the certain expectation that God is faithful to his promises, no matter how our current circumstances appear. For we know that he can be trusted and that his intentions toward us are good. Paul not only reminds us that patience will be required as we wait for God's purposes to prevail, but he also tells us of the need to be faithful in prayer. Prayer is as vital to our life with the Lord as breathing is to our bodies. So if prayer is vital, why then is it so often difficult to do? 
All of us know that it can be challenging to pray, especially when life seems to be overwhelming. But we have to realize that our enemy Satan does his best to keep us from faith-filled prayer because he knows just how powerful it is. For prayer not only develops our relationship with the Lord, it also builds our faith as well. For as we spend time in prayer, Casting all of our anxieties on the Lord, we come to know him in deeper ways than we did before. And as we see him answer prayer, it increases our faith for the future as we learn that he is totally trustworthy. Trust is essential for any Christian, but Paul realized just how important it was, particularly for those in Rome. When he encouraged them to share with God's people who are in need and practice hospitality, he was asking them to do something very daring. If you think about it, showing hospitality and sharing what we have with others requires real trust in the Lord. In the first place, Paul didn't say that they were to share with others only when they had plenty themselves. He wanted them to share with others even when they themselves were in need. That required real trust in the Lord's provision. In the second place, persecution was a reality in those days, and each time a Christian opened up their home to another person, they ran the very real risk of being turned over to the authorities. And yet, Paul called on them to practice hospitality anyway. That required real trust in the Lord's protection. The call is no different to us today. Those who follow Jesus Christ are to trust our Heavenly Father in all things and to treat others as Jesus did, with an open hand and an open heart. Paul knew that living in this way would lead us into conflict with the world at times, and so in verse 14 he begins to address our relationships with others. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Paul is calling us to interact with our neighbours in a humble, loving way. And lest we think we are only to love fellow Christians, he begins by addressing the most difficult of all relationships, encouraging us to bless and not curse others, even those who persecute us. No matter how badly treated we are, the Lord wants us to follow the example of Christ, who on the cross cried out for God's mercy on those who were causing him such harm. Through the ages, the kind and forgiving actions of the persecuted have often won their tormentors to Christ. I mean, think of Stephen in Acts chapter 7, who died praying for God's mercy to be upon those who were stoning him. Paul himself not only witnessed their brutalization of Stephen that day, but he approved of what was being done. And you know, St. Augustine, the theologian I mentioned several weeks ago, believed that the very reason Paul was saved in the end was because of Stephen's prayer in Act 7, when he was stoned to death. 
It is true that over the years, many of those who have been seeking to stamp out Christianity have become Christ followers themselves because of the actions of those they persecuted, praying for them to be blessed rather than cursed. Christ's followers are always to see things from God's perspective, and in order to minister effectively to other people, we must have compassion. Paul urges us to learn not only to rejoice with those who rejoice, but we are to mourn with those who mourn. As I thought about it, I realized just how challenging that is. For although we often have no trouble in coming alongside those who mourn, sometimes it's not as easy to rejoice with those who succeed and prosper. All the more if we happen to be struggling ourselves. But Paul is saying that we are to live in harmony with one another in the Christian community. There is to be no pride, no self-importance and no jealousies. And when we relate to the world in general, we're always to remember that God doesn't judge people according to the world's standards. A person's status, their rank, their abilities, their influence, their success should never change the way that we interact with them. We are to treat all people as being equal in God's sight. And we're to treat everyone with fairness, believer and non-believer alike. Paul then goes to give further advice on how to treat those who are hostile towards us. And he says in verse 17, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. As Christ's ambassadors, if evil is done to us, we are not to respond in like manner. Peter taught that same truth in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, when he said, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We must seek to do what is right, no matter what others think of us. Paul also encourages us in Romans 12 verse 18 to actively pursue peace with other people. But I want you to notice what he says. Although we are to pursue peace with everyone, we have to realize that it will not always be possible to attain it. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Sadly, peace doesn't always just depend on us. Invariably, others also have to make their own choice in the matter. But we should never be the ones to keep a conflict going. We should be the ones pursuing peace. Whatever the case, we are not to take revenge, but rather, following Christ's own example, we are to entrust ourselves to God, who judges justly. 
Vengeance doesn't belong to us. It belongs to the Lord. And he is well able to bring people to account. If not now, then on the day of judgment. Instead, Paul urges us to treat our enemies with kindness, allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their lives to bring them either to greater judgment or to repentance. His claim that in so doing we will heap burning coals on our enemy's head is a quote from Proverbs 25 verses 21 to 22, meaning not only will our actions have the potential to store up further punishment for them, but also they might move our enemies to burning shame. The verses in Proverbs actually conclude that if we treat others in this way, God promises to bless us for our actions in the end. Paul's last instruction in Romans 12 is the perfect summary for this section. He says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Those are powerful words for us today. Paul then transitions to a much larger question. How is the Christian to behave in a society so totally opposed to their faith? And his answer to that question is vital for us to understand and apply to our own lives. He begins with the general principle in Romans 13 verses 1 to 2 that everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Paul is clear that civil government is something that has been established by God himself to bring order to society. God never intended mankind to live in anarchy. There have been many different forms of government throughout history, but God has had his people and accomplished his purposes in all of them. According to Paul, it's not wrong that there are governing authorities and the Christian's duty is to submit to them, although we will see later there are some exceptions to that rule. This doesn't mean that God approves of the shameful deeds of rulers, but it does tell us that he uses the structure of society to hold the earth back from ruin. For if left completely to his own devices, there is really no evil that man is not capable of. As Jeremiah warned in Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the heart of man is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Paul also warns that we will bring judgment upon ourselves should we rebel against the authority God has allowed to be over us. Paul then speaks about the purpose of these authorities beginning in verse 3. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? 
Then do what is right, and he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but because of conscience. For those who do right, civil authorities bring good. Law-abiding citizens can live free from fear and they can expect to be commended and supported for doing what is right. However, for those who do wrong, rulers are a source of fear and punishment. They do not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, they're equipped with the necessary means to dispense punishment to lawbreakers. But do you see that in both cases the rulers are called God's servant in the text? They're accomplishing his purposes in what they do by rewarding good and punishing evil. It's a shame that many people are only prompted to do what is right by fear of punishment. So Paul adds that believers have a second, more important reason to obey. It is because of conscience. The Christian's main desire should be to keep a clear conscience before God, and so they are to obey the law of the land in order to please God and to be a good ambassador for Christ. Paul immediately gives his readers a perfect example of what he means when he says in verse 6, This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. No one really likes paying their taxes, do they? But Paul's point is here that these are necessary to support the civil authorities who govern. And if you don't pay them, you'll live in fear knowing that you risk punishment. The principle is that we're to give what we owe to the person to whom it is owed, whether that's revenue, respect or honour. In fact, this is no different to Christ's teaching about taxes. In Matthew 22 verse 21, Jesus settled an argument among his disciples about paying taxes to Caesar. He asked them whose face was on the coin, and when they replied Caesar's, he commanded them to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. The clear implication was that there are civil obligations and then there are religious ones and both need to be kept. Jesus also exemplified giving honour and respect to those to whom it is due. He was respectful to the Roman governor Pilate when he was brought before him, though Jesus knew who was really in control. When Pilate threatened him, asking if Jesus knew the power he held over him as governor, Jesus replied, You would have no power over me if it were not given you from above. Jesus never led a riot. He didn't advocate for social justice or try to reform the culture of his day, though he, more than anyone, was aware of all its corruption and failure. He was not a revolutionary in the political sense of that word today, yet his coming changed the course of history as no mere human revolution ever has.
Like Jesus, Paul wasn't trying to change the culture of his day. He was interested only in preaching the gospel and seeing it transform individuals. The Roman government he lived under was pagan, immoral and oppressive, but Paul could also acknowledge that God was using the order it brought and the expanse of its empire to carry the good news of Jesus out to all men. He saw it all from God's perspective. So the question then arises, if Romans 13 teaches that the Christian's duty is to submit to the governing authorities, are there any situations in which we are not to do so? Absolutely. We cannot obey a government that orders us to directly contravene the laws of God, for God is Lord over all. For example, when the religious leaders in Jerusalem commanded Peter and the apostles to stop speaking about Jesus, they refused in Acts chapter 5 verse 29, explaining we must obey God rather than men. The disciples were not afraid to disobey those kinds of commands, and honestly, I think if they had not disobeyed the authorities, none of us would be Christians today. Should any governing authority then try to ban us from speaking about Jesus, we are to continue to teach about him just as the disciples did, for we have to obey God above man. We also see this principle at work, though, in the Old Testament. When the Jews were held captive in Egypt, the Pharaoh demanded that their midwives kill any Jewish male child that was born. But those women secretly refused to do so. In fact, they told the Egyptian ruler that the Jewish women gave birth so quickly the children had been born before they even got there. You can find the story in Exodus chapter 1, but it's worthy of note that the midwives refused to obey the authority over them because they knew that they were being asked to do what was wrong against the law of God. And the scriptures declare in Exodus chapter 20 that despite their untruthful explanation to Pharaoh, God was kind to the midwives, and because they feared God, he gave them families of their own. God blessed them because of their obedience to his superior commands. The prophet Daniel also showed this kind of discernment when Israel was in captivity in Babylon. He served under several Babylonian dictators with integrity and honor. He honored their authority over him until the time that their commands conflicted with the commands of God. As was his custom, Daniel prayed three times each day facing towards Jerusalem, just as God had commanded his people to do. However, Daniel's devotion to his God became known to his enemies in the king's court, and in order to trap Daniel, they persuaded the king to sign a law that essentially banned prayer for a period of 30 days, the punishment being that offenders would be thrown to the lions. What would Daniel do? 
Would he obey the earthly king's command and take a break from his faithful prayers to the living God? Would he hide in his closet to pray so no one would see him break the law? Would he just pray in his mind? No. Daniel 6 verse 10 states, Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Daniel continued to faithfully obey God and as a result he was thrown to the lions for breaking the earthly king's law. God miraculously protected him though and also brought about an incredible change in the leadership of that empire through everything that happened. There are many other instances throughout scripture and in the ongoing history of the church in which we see the servants of God risk their own lives in order to obey God's commands rather than follow the authorities' decrees that contravened them. Sometimes, as in Daniel's case, it's ended with deliverance, but often it hasn't. And many brave believers have given their all to remain faithful to the Lord they loved. Paul will move on to other practical concerns in the rest of chapter 13. But his words here about how to live in a world that's hostile to God and his gospel give us much to think about. There is a parallel passage of sorts in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 14 to 17. I want to close with that today. He says, But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. But in your heart set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience. It is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.